When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi guys, this is Andreas Steno speaking from Real Vision. I want to welcome you back to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. On the 29th of November, we've got the um, famous fruit tech stock in trouble due to issues in uh, China. And uh, energy is basically back as a winner today after a bad 10 days or so, relatively speaking. So uh, we're going to ask the question today whether there is any energy left in the energy trade, which has otherwise been the performer this year. And uh, I've got a guest lined up to sort of rock and roll on that question. Tony Greer, always great to host you. How are you, buddy? Andres, how you doing, man? Good, good. Uh, but before we get to the energy discussion, Tony, uh, I wanted your take on sort of the most recent price action across sectors here. Um, give us your brief fly and what's on your radar right now. Yeah, you know, Andreas, I'm kind of bored by the stock market right now. It is uh, bobbling, quite honestly, between the 100-day moving average in the S&P at around 3,900 and the 200-day moving average in the S&P above the market at around 4050 or so. We're heading into month-end tomorrow. I'm hoping that there'll be some month-end volatility around the turn that'll shake us out of that S&P range. Um, but as you said, it's been a couple a uh, couple days of a heavy tape in commodities, led to a heavy tape in you know natural resources in the stock market for sure. Um, you know today we're seeing a little bit of a retracement of that move. I always feel like when stocks are left to their own devices and aren't being acted upon by an aggressive outside move or outside headline, that they revert back to the great rotation, which is more what we're seeing today which is just literally where you've got gold and miners at the top of the leaderboard up two and a half percent, oil services, transports and airlines up two percent apiece. And then you've got everything tech essentially in the red. Right. So that's kind of been the broad rotation that we're seeing. Um, it might be forced today a little bit by that macro trade that feels like it never goes away, like yields are still kind of bit around the highs. The dollar index is holding in on this dip to the 200-day moving average. I would not short it down here in this bullish uptrend. So we'll see what happens with the stock rotation, but I needed to break this range until I get really excited, Andres. I obviously referred to the Apple stock price uh, when I introduced today's program. And um, we have some issues ongoing in China, which relates to the supply chain of Apple. What's your view on technology stocks in light of what's ongoing in China, Tony? You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not a biologist, as they say, so not an expert on uh, the geopolitical story in China, but I would say, you know, tech to me is still gonna remain under pressure this year, Andreas. You know, it's one of the losing sectors. A lot of the subsectors are down big. Um, you know, Apple's taken the stage lately in, you know, a really difficult bout of being two-faced. You know, at the moment, you know, they're they're not allowing, um, you know, the protesters in China to, you know, I guess it's um, uh, transfer certain cloud documents to each other. And then they're over here fighting Elon Musk, who's making Twitter a free speech platform again. 
So that's kind of a, a black eye for them. Not that that hurts their stock price or anything, but maybe takes a little bit of their, you know, world beater credibility away. Um, you know, that just, you know, it just kind of adds on to the, the to the go woke, go broke scenario. If you ask me, that's kind of what's happening to Disney. You know, you saw the stock crater from like 180 to 100 and they had to just rehire Rob Iger to see if that makes a difference. My sense is it won't. Um, you know, so we'll see what happens with the, the broad tech story. But I still think, Andreas, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that we're still in the mode of being in the commodity super cycle reigniting, which just kind of hit the pause button for a while. And I still think that rates are going higher. So I can't be a tech bull at any stage of the game right now. Tony, given the most recent price action that you've seen in energy stocks, what do you make of your own book in the current scenario? Well, as you know, as you know, I'm out of the crude oil trade. Uh, you know, the price action has been scary, quite frankly. You know, we had a shot at a reversal when oil was last seen up above 90. I think it was after the PPI number came out. Um, and it was a num another number that was slightly better than inflation expectations. And we had crude oil lurch into the 90s, which was right at resistance. It was at the neckline of an inverse head and shoulders. And it failed miserably. Right. Then we ran into those China, you know, rising COVID cases, the, the zero lockdown story, which is going to turn out to be the most hideous story in the globe history of the last 10 years. But it's going to affect the energy markets, unfortunately. Um, you know, we had that five dollar sell off this week uh, ahead of, you know, Russian selling ahead of sanctions, um, you know, more potential lockdowns in China. Then we have a five dollar oil rally on speculation that OPEC is going to cut on this story, and this might be the biggest piece of fake news ever made up on the internet, that Beijing will bolster vaccination among seniors, and that's gonna make the reopening of China uh, you know, get here faster. I don't even know how to read these headlines that are coming across in the oil market anymore. So with a position of being confused, I'm rather neutral on the commodity itself. Um, it's hard to stay bullish when you see things like Jan going off the board at 40 cents can tango. You know, you look out to the next spread, Jan Feb and WTI. Um, that spread collapsed from a dollar backwardated to flat in the last couple of weeks of trading. You know, essentially the calendar just repriced from $11 to $4, Andreas. It's a big move in, in the physical structure, and it explains why the price is on its ass down here. Um, at the same time, you've got the crack spread as firms could be in the low 30s. Um, that's a testament to strong diesel demand and the fact that we just went over um, the global demand in gasoline that we saw before the pandemic. So you've got Gen diesel that was a 25 cent uh, backwardated spread backs all the way off to a nickel. And Jan Feb, you know, around the next year backs off from 13 cents to six and a half cents. So diesel fuel still in the tightly backwardated spread mode, um, but the flat price is backing off now below the 200-day moving average, and that was the tip of the spear. So, Andreas, when the tip of the spear backs off below the 200-day moving average, spreads collapse back to flat, there's nothing for an oil trader to do but be neutral to commodity here. And the other end of that coin that you mentioned is the equities. And they've been outperforming, um, you know, that gap between XLE and WTI is something we've been highlighting over the last several weeks. Um, the stocks have been mysteriously performing really, really well, sort of alongside the metals and mining and other natural resources stocks. Oil services certainly has been a leader. Um, refiners have been a leader. 
And so far, you know, the oil stocks have reached a new high and then now I've just pulled back into support. So it always seems like when the tape backs off big, natural resources hold in first, they kill everything. And then if commodities back off, there's a pullback in natural resources stocks that are, you know, still in uptrending bull markets. So nobody's really afraid to stick their neck out and buy those. That's just my view right now, Andreas. What do you think? Tony, I, I, I was talking about this disconnection between energy stocks and the uh, actual oil prices, right? I think we can bring up chat one, Brian, um, with that disconnect being quite clear over the past couple of months. And Tony, I, I have to admit, you've been spot on playing this game from the long side in the energy stock space instead of in the oil price, uh, which has basically been 100% right. But what I ponder right now is whether we should mind this gap. And I don't know whether you have any sort of ideas or feelings around that trade in particular. I sure do. You know, Andreas, you and I know that that gap jumps out like a sore thumb to a trader, right? And and if you have a position in either of those securities, whether it be oil or in oil stocks, you got to start scratching your head now and making a really hard decision. The chart looks like it's telling you that if you sell the stocks and buy the commodity here, that eventually those will come back into line because they've been trading in line for, I mean, months and months on end. You could call it years on end, really. This is just a really wide separation. It seems to me like it could be a factor of as portfolio managers get kicked out and stopped out of, you know, technology names they've been long, cyclical names that they've been long, they look around the market and see that the, you know, the fundamental case for energy still exists. The fundamental case for industrials looks good, you know, plow money into some of these sectors in the end of the year. If portfolio managers were putting cash to work in those sectors, that might be what propped them up. And I'm not sure. It's just a guess um, because the commodities were holding in really well while they were doing all this buying. So I think that might have created part of the disconnect. And I'm still like you scratching my head trying to figure out which is the right leg to lift. I'm not sure if it's, uh, you know, flattening out of the energy stocks, which I'm, I'm almost flat. I'm, I'm left to uh, essentially long refineries now. Uh, in Marathon Petroleum, and I brought my stop loss up really tight to the market. So when that does, you know, start to back off, I'll book the most profit that I can book along the life of the trade. Um, but it hasn't done so yet, right? It hasn't given you, you know, the charts in some of these names haven't given you a chance or a reason to sell. If you're a serious technician, they're just pulling back into moving average support. So we're going to continue to give them a chance to trade and let the market tell us what to do here, Andreas. I don't know how else to play it. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. And one thing I could add in relation to that discrepancy between the oil market and the energy stocks is that what I show on chart one is the difference between the first contract on the curve, so the very front end of the oil curve. If you look at it relative to, let's say, two, three years out, then it's not necessarily as big a gap. And obviously for a oil company, for an energy company, it's much more important whether the two, three year outlook is good, whether um, to buy the stock or not. So 
this is potentially a short-term story and not a long-term story. I have to agree with you on that, Tony. One thing that I would really like your take on is um, chart two of the day, um, which is a chart referring to the strategy of the Biden administration in relation to the strategic petroleum reserves. And as you can see from the orange line, it's been dropping like a stone ahead of the midterms. It's still dropping, but at a slower pace. But I mean, they basically promised us, Tony, to buy back oil below 80. What's going on? <laughs> That's a good question, Andreas. And uh, I want to say, you know, a couple of things. I am sh I'm in shock that the SPR maneuver by the Biden administration worked as well as it did. You know, I, ha I have to sort of, you know, tip your hat to that sort of, you know, political savagery, you know, to take a nation's actual strategic reserve that sits there in case of an emergency spill it before everyone's eyes for political purposes, have that effect take place in the market where you actually do, you know, knock 20% off the gas price and maybe not so do as badly in the uh, midterm elections as they might have thought. So it was a genius political move. Um, I don't know if they're going to show up on the bid, though, do you? You know, I, I tend I tend to doubt that they're going to turn around now and say, OK, you know, the USA is now inhaling oil while we're also in a position of trying to end drilling and end fossil fuels. So I'd love to hear your opinion even more than I have mine. Well, I mean, first of all, I don't think they are active right now for the obvious reason that we have the OPEC meeting upcoming this weekend. So why try and guide the market ahead of that that meeting um, and Essentially, if OPEC decides to play ball, we had some headlines on Saudi Arabia sort of pondering whether to, to actually increase the output. I highly doubt it, to be honest. Uh, but why not wait until after that OPEC meeting to take a decision on this SPR? Uh, so this OPEC meeting um, next weekend will be extremely interesting for the, um, for the oil market, obviously. Uh, and my best guess is actually that we get a negative surprise on the output front, because if I were the Saudi Arabian crown prince, I would cut supply, not increase it right now. What's your take on the OPEC meeting next weekend, Tony? You know, I, I get a feeling that they have it half an eye on, you know, spreads going from backwardated to contango and knowing that that's probably not an accurate reflection of where global inventories are. Right. So what, what, what do they, you know, they have the tools in their toolkit to react. They can cut output. I would imagine if they want to keep the price around here, they can, they've got room and reason to say we see enough economic slowdown uh, for an output cut. They have room and reason to say that we we're still getting paid, you know, absurd levels in the physical markets here from our Asian clients and we're going to keep the markets tight. And it seems like, you know, they have been sort of tit for tat with every, SPR sale coming back with another output cut, you know, so while we don't have another SPR sale on the schedule yet, I guess we're still in the schedule of the last um, announced number of sales through the end of this year. Um, and then we're going to find out what they do after that with the SPR. My sense was that after the midterms that there wouldn't be the political will to continue selling it. And I guess we'll find out soon whether or not that's right or wrong, because we don't know yet. But they may decide to take it to zero and they may decide to just forget about it and move on. So I'm interested to see what happens. Tony, I wanted to play a soundbite for you from uh, a discussion between James Helliwell and Michael Kubo um, on the oil market outlook. Uh, and we actually found a bearish 
oil market analyst for once at the Real Vision platform. You and I probably agree on the long-term outlook for oil, uh, but we have someone on the platform for once speaking in the other direction. So let's listen to Michael and get back to that discussion. Let's hear it. So with all that elevated uncertainty that we could be looking at, I just struggle to see a ton of upside in equities right now, given that incentive for people to say, you know what, I'm just going to park it over here and get the yields. If you have this continued softening in, in inflation, you have yields starting to roll over, you have this sort of year-end, you know, January effect where you get a big mean reversion in performance. And that works, again, also in my bearish outlook for things like energy and cyclicals. Now people can sell those at long-term capital gain rates. And so January, they're buying, you know, the ones that they sold for the tax losses and they're selling the ones that they were winners on. Um, so you could see a really big factor rotation, I think, in January, mm. early next year. Um, I'm particularly bearish on oil. And I know there's a lot of guests that come on here that are very vocal about bullish oil uh, for, a ver for various reasons. And there's a lot of great cyclical or secular arguments. I, again, I just, I have to follow the business cycle and I can't imagine a world where oil is completely unaffected by that. The entire discussion between Michael and James is already available today for our essential subscribers at the Real Vision platform. But back to you, Tony. Um, I mean, we found an oil bear uh, and I guess it's a bit easier today compared to a couple of months ago to be negative on oil, given the sort of outlook for the uh, global economy. So do you concur with the view that a potential short-term setback is on the cards? Put it this way, um, you know, for the first time, oil feels vulnerable, right? The, mm. the chart looks terrible. The, the, the narrative timing and optics look terrible. Um, you know, there's not going to be an economic surprise, I don't think, on the upside that, that maybe can fling this around and get it going in the other direction. So while I, I'm not personally 0% bearish right here, I'm just kind of neutral and watching the commodity. But it does, like I said, it seems vulnerable to a slide. You know, we attacked that uh, June low um, or no, excuse me, the September low. We just breached and maybe bounced and are lingering around here in the mid 70s. But price action is terrible. No matter what you think, there has not been one reversal type of move. Um, the last chance we had one was when oil was up at 92 bucks and we had a chance to break through a resistance there. Since then, everything has been that oil looks like it's going down. So I can't really touch it yet. Tony, you wrote a great piece this morning called The Pain in the Heart, uh, among other things, talking about the sort of lack of rationality in the ESG push in Europe. Um, you also mentioned the story unfolding in the Netherlands with the farmers closing, etc. So uh, give the audience a brief summary before we discuss the content, Tony. Yeah, you know, it's... Uh... Late afternoon yesterday, you see this headline that, you know, the Dutch government is going to close 3,000 farms, you know, in the name of obviously, you know, um, nitrogen pollution was, I think, the exact um, angle that they went at it. And they said that, you know, they're going to buy back the farms from these farmers and they're going to take control of them. And this would be done with a great pain in their heart. So they're trying to sound sympathetic. Um, to a situation that sounds like it's going to really dramatically hurt the European food supply chain. So when you kind of look back at the directive that this gets laid down by the nitrogen minister in the Netherlands, and she's in the cabinet of Mark Rutte, 
who is in his fourth term, and he is a World Economic Forum agenda contributor. And you say, oh, okay, so this is, you know, you see where this is coming from, but you don't see, you know, how it's going to work out in the end. And I'm not sure that they do either. So I just fear that canceling out the production of 3,000 Dutch farms is going to be a little bit more catastrophic than maybe the newspapers are willing to lead on right now. You know, I've heard some talk where, you know, France is very politically savvy and they've been trying to bring agriculture back home to France um, in Europe for years and that this was just a move to sort of bring some of the agriculture back to them. And I think that's sort of ignorant of the broader theme that is obviously going on, right? We've got Klaus Schwab going around and, um, you know, caught on tape blatantly saying that China is a great model, you know, for this future industrialized economy that he's going right ahead and planning. Um, and I think it also kind of ignores a lot of the food supply chain crises that we've seen this year, which are up sort of 20 and 50 fold what we've seen years prior, where there are all kinds of, um, you know, fires and disasters happening at food supply chain, uh, at food supply industry. So when I add all this up, I feel like there is a greater agenda that scares the living hell out of me to, you know, get us to another form of food um, to end, you know, the traditional Western culture of farming and that we've been under living under for thousands of years now. And I don't necessarily think that it's the right thing direction to go. So I'd love to hear what your opinion is on it, Andreas. Maybe I'm being a little bit fatalistic. Maybe I'm being an alarmist, but I think that the headlines are really alarming. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Uh, Tony, to me, this is clearly an underreported story in Europe. Um, and I think I tweeted probably a couple of months ago that is it even fair to call yourself a sovereign state if you're not self-sufficient on energy and food right now? I don't think so. Uh, and, and I mean, why close down farms in the current environment? I mean... There may be plenty of reasons to do it long term, but right now, it seems like the most odd timing in history. Um, and I wanted to bring up a chart, uh, chart three, Brian, uh, on the inflation that we've seen in uh, namely fertilizers and, and nitrogen uh, compounds in, in, in the Netherlands, just to give you a flavor of the environment that farmers are dealing with. Uh, and we, we had an inflation of 175% in this very instrumental input cost for farmers earlier this year. It's still running above 100%. So, I mean, the timing couldn't be worse. Let me put it like that. And I think that's why you see protests day in and day out with farmers literally throwing dirt at the parliament. And I think it's kind of fair given the timing of this. Um, so, Tony, one one chart that I would like to show from, from your daily um, briefing is basically the chart on Chinese emissions relative to German emissions. And I hope you have it uh, ready for us, Brian, because, uh, I mean, it, it it's kind of mind-blowing to just watch that chart and then watch European politics at the same time. 
we kind of we kind of think that we can sort of guide the world towards these 2050 targets and then you look at chinese emissions uh totally yeah give us a rant i mean so, so that's the chart of co2 emissions uh china in uh, green i believe it is that's the spike up on top um versus germany in red which as you can see has been working for years and years and years to lighten their carbon footprint and it looks like they've lightened it by you know a half a centimeter on that chart of co2 emissions so, you know, this tells the entire story of corruption. If you ask me, Andreas, I can't draw the direct lines or anything like that. But if there's one nation that's out there completely flogging all of the emissions rules, it sounds like those are probably the ones that are getting the emissions rules clamped down on everybody else. Call me crazy. But I mean, I feel like that chart tells the story. Um, we see the same type of political pressure here in the U.S. It seems to be coming from the same type of direction in the exact same form. Um, and it just doesn't have as much legs because we're not the same type of economy and not the same type of community. So we'll see where this goes in the future. But I'm definitely nervous when you dovetail that story with the fact that Bill Gates is now one of the biggest landowners here in the United States. There's something going on beyond a um, carbon emissions agenda. If you ask me, Tony, I am Scandinavian after all, and I'm sitting here wearing Patagonia, so I'm trying to save the world, as you know. <laughs> but in any case, Tony, um, what I wanted to sort of end the discussion um, with is uh, sort of your view on the overall balance of risk in equity markets, um, given that we have these risks surrounding the um, otherwise bullish outlook for energy. So, do you think this is a signal that equities are going to end? the year on sort of a lower note relative to what we've been seeing in, in October, November? Well, we are we are definitely at the uh, tailgate party for the end of the year move, right? That's where we are right now. You know, we're trying to decide whether it's going to be a bull move or a bear move. You know, it. it um, if you look at the chart pragmatically, it looks like a bear market bounce that is going to probably just fizzle out at its 200-day moving average and maybe head to a new low, right? If you remember the bearish bubble in sentiment that we were in on that Thursday when the S&P broke below 3,600 to 3,500 and right back up to 3,600, right? That's the kind of low that sort of floor traders can hang their hat on. And I've been hanging my hat on it ever since it happened. So if you remember how big that bearish sentiment bubble was and how surprising that and how quick that reversal in price was in the S&P, you can still make a case that the upside might be the path of least resistance. Right. It's really easy to read bad economic data and say, oh, sell stocks. And it's really easy to see, you know, companies miss earnings and say sell stocks. That doesn't necessarily mean the S&P is going down. Right. And that's what I feel like now when I look at the chart, I can I can literally, depending on which, you know, kind of Rorschach response I feel like giving, I can make a bull case and I can make a bear case out of the S&P right now, which is why I'm vastly de-risked. And I just I'm not going to rule out the case where. People are waiting for selling to happen into the end of the year so they can cover and they never get that opportunity. And next thing you know, the S&P is above its 200-day moving average and everybody that's short has to be out. So I'm kind of caught between those two scenarios right now, Andreas. I'm sitting on a powder keg of uh, dry powder and I'm gonna ready, getting ready to pray with an E. I just don't know which way we're going yet. Absolutely fair, Tony. Uh, we've got a 
bunch of questions coming in. Uh, we always get that when you are on air, Tony. And, and first of all, from, from Joshua, um, one of our members, he's asking you for a uh, updated view on natural gas, um, in, in sort of in relation to what we've been discussing on oil. Yeah, natural gas is another super tricky one, as you know, Andreas. Um, you know, the, the chart of the new of of American natural gas has been an unbelievable recovery, right? It, it, it you know, we got all the way up to $10, $11, broke down below the moving averages, got as low as like five or six, and then we came roaring back up above the moving averages when Dutch TTF went back up above 100 euro per megawatt hour. Right. So I'm kind of always using Europe as a reference because I still think Europe is the sort of tip of the spear that's driving natural gas prices. And even though those prices have sort of bounced off the lows recently, as you and I were just discussing um, before the show today, you know, there's a great Reuters article out there about natural gas um, storage in Europe heading into this winter. And they're actually at a record now. Um, with um, over a thousand terawatt hours in storage heading into winter. So as we discussed, they're going to be just fine. Look, it looks like, you know, going forward, there are really two variables, and that's Mother Nature and Vladimir Putin. So if things get worse over there and Putin cuts gas, we're going to be back into this crazy scenario that we were in um, last this summer with prices spiking all over the place. And the same thing if Mother Nature hands us a super cold winter this winter. We could, you know, use go burn through all of the storage. You never know. So with Mother Nature and Vladimir Putin as the sort of catalysts, it's really hard to read the story other than to know in the back of your mind that if we still have this attack on supply and there's no let up, that natural gas prices are more likely to see spikes and more and more spikes in the future. So that's kind of how I look at the market as a market that's probably in a stable bullish uptrend that is very susceptible to, to upside spikes and probably not as susceptible to downside implosions, if you ask me, Andreas. I just have a sort of natural um, bullish bent toward natural gas, and I don't have any risk on in the space at all right now. So what's your base case for the weather this winter, Tony? I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm not a biologist, right? <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> but I... I I, I just wanted to add that if, if we look at the storages right now in Europe, um, they will last for in between two and a half and three months in case of emergency. So I think it's pretty safe to say that we are good to go until at least mid-March and then spring is almost around, right? So I guess this winter is clear. Um, Final question before uh, I'll leave you for, for the day, Tony. Um, we, we've got a great question from, from Carl, one of our members. Uh, asking for an opinion on copper uh, and the price action in copper uh, now that we see this back and forth on China, whether it's reopening or not. And I may have a few views, but I'll, I'll, I'll allow you to go first. Yeah, and I'll keep mine really succinct, Andreas, if you have a, a really strong view, because mm. mine is just based on the chart, right? When I, when I dial back and look at the LME copper chart, um, I see that we pulled back to, uh, I guess it was around 77,000 or 7,500 was the 2019 or 2020 peak right before copper broke out and ran to 11K. So we pulled back to that level. And this is one of my trades where I keep a close eye on commodities that are consolidating at old highs. Right. And so that's what copper is doing now. And it's literally lulling me to sleep because it won't break in either direction. It seems to be 7,000 bid at 88,000, 8,200, 8, 8,500, something like that. 
um, but it is hovering above that old high. So I have an upside bias toward copper. I still think that if we're going to, uh, I don't know, unfortunately try to take this car net zero 2030 story seriously, that, you know, that that's a big draw on supply. Inventories are not at all at um, historically high levels. They're at historically low levels. It leads me to believe that there's an upside bias in price. But again, I don't have any risk on in copper or in um, industrial mines right now. And I think we need to remember that China is probably the biggest net importer of copper worldwide. And if you ask me, and I may be donning my tinfoil hat right now, I think the best thing that can happen for the global economy is a widespread COVID spread in China, because that will allow the authorities to reopen. I don't think they will ever reopen if they succeed in the zero COVID policy. But if it is clear, crystal clear to everyone that the zero COVID policy is the biggest brain fart in modern history, then I think they actually have a chance of reopening. And I think that will allow Xi to at least sort of slowly but surely pull in that direction. That is my view on it, and it's extremely contrary, and I have to remind you of that. That would be positive copper. Tony, any final remarks for um, the uh, the audience that you, you want to conclude the show with? Well, one, one comment I have to make is that I, I love your point about zero COVID being the biggest brain fart in human history, and I think that it's unfortunately already been proven with 10 people dying in a fire due to zero COVID policy. I don't think you need to go any further than that. That probably answers the question that it was the biggest brain fart in human history. We'll see what happens from there. And like I said, um, I'm, I'm sort of treating the equity price action like we're at a great big tailgate getting ready to go into an SEC championship football game. And when we start to break in either direction, I'm going to be excited about it, probably follow it with a trade and, um, you know, look to cap off the year with probably strength in energy and commodities and probably weakness in technology, just like it started. So we'll see what happens down the stretch. And finally, I wanted to congratulate you on winning versus Iran in the World Cup. Tony, I don't know whether you watch soccer, but um, at least from my end, that's that's the perfect winner of that that game. Yeah, I heard then. I heard that we that a win was the only thing that we would advance with. So good for the USA soccer team, outstanding. Absolutely, uh, Tony. Once again, a great pleasure to host you, and thank you for chipping in when uh, my Wi-Fi just briefly dis disconnected. Always, Andres. I got your back, my man. You do a great job every week. Cheers, Tony. Uh, we will be back tomorrow with more. Maggie Lake will host the show. And uh, I would want to thank you ultimately for watching the show today. See you tomorrow. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. 